You're listening to Between Two Ravens, a Norse mythology podcast with Sean and David. Hey, Sean. How's it going? It's going great, David. How are you? I'm good. I've been having a pretty good week, although it's been really, it has been really cold here. It's been, I've been having a pretty good week. Yeah, I had a nice, like, relaxing weekend, I felt. How about for Fantastic. you? Fantastic. Oh, yeah, same here, except I, uh... I got into an accident last week. Like everyone's fine and everything, but my car is in the repair shop. So this weekend I had to get, I had to borrow my parents' car. So it just kind of created a bunch of, um, it created like a new uh, set of things that we had to worry about over the week, but everyone, like it's fine. Like it's past us and the car is almost fixed now. So they'll get it fixed, but yeah, it's just a hassle. They have to trade off cars and stuff like that. Yeah. But outside of that, everything's good. We went to Port City Brewing in Alexandria on Saturday. We walked the dogs there. They enjoyed it. They enjoyed the good weather and we got to try some new beers. So so it's been pretty nice there. Oh, good. Yeah. Do you ever do like the flights where you'll get a bunch of, you know, like six different one little tasters? Yeah, uh, typically. But as, as our listeners know, I typically just go for whatever IPA is on tap. But if I do go to a new brewery, I'll, I'll get like a flight of something just to try the best or just try to see what I like from that brewery. That's what I was wondering, um, what, they're, what they're known for or if, you know, if they, they do anything uh, especially good there. Yeah. I think this Saturday I got two IPAs and then a pale ale. Tonight, um, yeah, tonight I'm, I'm being basic. It's just uh, straight Johnny Walker Black on the rocks. <laughs> Nice. Oh, Johnny Walker Black's one of my top. Uh, I forget. Did I ask you before if you got that the big bottle from Costco? Uh, no, I did not. We did not go to Costco. Um, we went to one of the local ABC stores here, which is like the uh, the state run liquor store. Hmm. But yeah, like I just I just decided to go with the basics. I've done this on a previous episode, and I also was like, yeah, I was just too bit like bored. I I didn't feel like creating a new uh, drink. So no, not creative enough. Yeah. I'll have yeah. to come up with what's a, a Viking drink that uses Johnny Walker Black. I'll have to think of that for when we do our <laughs> uh, when we do our cookbook and cocktail book. That uh, somebody somebody gave me that idea. <laughs> that's I think that's inevitable at this point. We're going to create this like book that we're going to claim is what the Norse would have drank, and then everyone's going to tell us how wrong we are. It's just no, it's but... just all the recipes we've ever mentioned on the show, and just make it a book because uh, somebody expressed interest in that. So maybe we should. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Sean is mixing his scotch with his eggs. Great. <laughs> scotch and eggs. That's, that's new meaning to the a scotch egg. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, you know, why, why mix it up? Like you have to go through in a whole process of mixing scotch and eggs. So just have some uh, eggs cooked in coconut oil because that's healthy, but then add scotch to it. And then, and then my new thing is I've been playing uh, Stardew Valley after you talked about it last mm. week. I actually bought it for my phone so I can play on my phone like five minutes here and there. And uh, I'm much better at making money in the game than I used to be because it used to be, I think I spent so much time just trying to talk to all the townsfolk. But now I'm yeah. uh, serious. Uh, Ah, there's a joke. Some serious cabbage growing, uh, growing cauliflower. <laughs> you like that? Much? Nice. I like how you did tell me it was a joke as opposed to just going with it and seeing how like I reacted. But no, you're the one um, yeah, but no, that that's awesome. Um, I I in the last week of playing Stardew, I finally started the fishing mechanic of the game. Typically, I would just sell my like grow crops, sell crops, go to the mines, find stuff, donate to the museum, and then sell like whatever I find in the mines. But now I started actually fishing. And I'm already a level five fisherman. Like after you get through the first, That's actually quite impressive. I don't, I don't care for the fishing mechanic, so I'm, I'm very impressed you got the level five. Yeah. It's it's very I don't know. It's cool. It's like I have a day where I don't know what to do in the winter, so I'm just going to go to the river and catch some fish. I think that's our next uh, podcast idea is our Stardew Valley podcast where we talk about who are the uh, who are the hot singles. Actually, I want to give Beth's opinion on uh, which of the oh, guys God. are which of the guys are actually. Uh, any good because they all seem like they're bums there's like the one guy looks like fabio but otherwise i think most of the guys seem like bums yeah i, I forgot i forgot his name i think it's like not, it's not Dale. it's like ethan or something out of he lives but, out by the beach in a shack yeah i think so yeah because sean oh, what are we talking about today let's see i guess this is part two of the runes uh and you're gonna take it away I had this one little thought from from last week because last week we were talking about thor and odin's uh, insult battle and talking about kind of like verbal bullying and i just I don't know, something I kept thinking about it, whether the way it used to be and then the way it sounds like it is for kids today, right? And is it better the way it is today or was it better the way it used to be? So there's the thing came in my mind that um, my dad used to always say, I think like preparing me for the, you know, the horrors of uh, the schoolyard was that uh, at least you tell yourself sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Right. And you're supposed to like say that over and over until it sounds true. Did you ever hear that before, Sean? I, I have heard that many times. And with my father, he would tell me, like, if anybody like is bullying you and, and they're all laughing at you, just tell them, you know what? They're not laughing with you. They're laughing at you. And I was like, dad, I'm a seven year old in the 1990s. That doesn't work, bro. Like, Wait, did he say it backwards similar. or did you just say it backwards? 
Yeah. No, he he said like you. This is what you tell a bully. Like your oh. friends are not laughing with you; they're laughing at you. And I'm like, oh. Dad, that's not that's not true. They're all yeah. laughing at me. But no. well, and that's, <laughs> I think my dad was a little older because he grew up in the 50s. But the one he said is uh, apparently probably back in the day, and it's just very funny to imagine kids doing this. That uh, they're they're insulting you, and you're supposed to say, "Well, I'm rubber, and you're glue, and whatever you say bounces off me and sticks to you." And then they say, "Well, you're you know," they say something else really rude to you, and then you say it again, and then you say it again until. They're just like sick of you and they walk away. Until they just walk away. That's actually smart. Yeah. It's pretty funny. That's what, that's what Thor should have said to Odin, but Thor had to get across the river somehow. And he was just, he didn't feel like walking. No. And even if they say a thing and it's completely out of context, just say, well, I'm rubber and you're glue and whatever you say bounces off me and sticks to you. And they're just like, I can't, I can't get through to this guy. Right. But uh, I, I think about these ideas and it's, you know, like the first one, right. Sticks and stones will break your bones, but words will never hurt you. Right. I've heard some people more recently kind of think like that's an excuse that the bullies get to just keep being bullies and you just have to sit there and take it. Right. And it's sort of like this very, you know, Greek stoicism idea of, well, the words actually can't hurt you. So therefore don't let them hurt you. Right. It's your, it's your choice to agree with the insult to let it reach you. But then there's a thought that that's like being overly emotionally controlled, right? Like you're shutting down your emotions. You know, you're going to pay for the consequences of that later as we talk about like the, the unconscious and the shadow. Clearly, I was thinking about it a lot this week. I was re- reading back in a book by, um, I forget his first name. His last name's Gottman. And he's very famous as a, a couples counselor, but also talking about families. His book's called mm-hmm. uh, How to Raise an Emotionally Intelligent Child. And it was somewhere near the end, but he says that, especially with kids that are like age eight to 10, it's actually a good thing for them to learn to be numb to the insults of their peers. But you don't want them to be numb to like all feelings, right? They should have a warm relationship with their parents where they can like talk about it after. But to learn that skill to shut down your emotions when there's another kid trying to embarrass you in front of the school, right? And then you overreact and now you're even more embarrassed than you were just when that guy kept saying whatever he's saying. This is, you know, a guy who's an expert uh, psychologist. He says there's something to that, right? So I think it goes Mm -hmm. back. I don't know what the right answer is, but I think it's like the right skill for the right moment, right? That like, it's good to be able to do, you know, what Odin's doing, right? It's, It's good to be able to turn it off and not let them get to you. I mean, ideally, yeah, we could improve the world, make things better, that people would stop being bullies. But. This is something you brought up last episode where Odin, his rune that like dulls a sword's edge, right. like maybe that's just the ability to talk your way out of a deadly situation. Right. So if you are on the receiving end of like, if you're, or if you're Thor, when and Odin's bullying you, are you able to just talk your way out of it to where the, he stops? Or are you just able to kind of absorb what he's given you? And then like what you're saying, the fact that, you got to like be numb to that, but then go to your parents and then be vulnerable with them. Right. And it's, it's sort of like this, uh, it's like this thought that they're your family. And it's like, I know this way. I'm never alone. Yeah. The, the goal thing, is, like, and that's actually another it's completely off topic, but another book I really like, it's called um, keep your children close. And it's about this idea of peer attachment that some kids get so attached to their peers, to their friends they're almost more attached to the friends than they are to their parents. Right. And that'll happen if, you know, attachment with parents isn't great. And then it's the, the book is all about how do you get that back? If you're a parent and you want attachment back with your kids, but they become attached to their peers. The problem with that is that their peers don't know how to take care of their emotions. Right. So they are relying on their peers and then they just get, it hurts them so much more than somebody who has that securely with their parents. So that's, mm. I'm very much getting into psychology stuff, <laughs> but it's, uh, <laughs> well, that's what half this podcast is supposed that's, to be. That's so. the psychology half, right? You know, I was thinking as you mentioned that idea of bullying, and I was listening back to the, myself on the podcast. But the uh, that was the point I was trying to make was yeah, like you're saying that these are the skills to use to talk yourself out of a situation, right? Using the right skill at the right time, right? Because you use it the wrong way, and yeah, you are just bullying somebody. You're tearing them down. But then if someone tries to bully you, and you have these skills to flip it on them, well, that might be a good thing, right? That's there's no easy answer there. Yeah, definitely. Anyways, my little tangent side side note. But yes, today, what are we talking about? So uh, runes part two the runes part two as we've been talking about on the podcast so that mythology it's not just a series of stories to read for entertainment but it's a system of symbols that attempt to express some type of greater wisdom so the Havamal gives you kind of some bite-sized chunks of wisdom but a deeper wisdom it's harder to define it's harder to really just tell somebody here's how you be wise you have to learn to kind of interpret it for yourself so Odin's sacrifice of himself to himself, it represents this journey, right? He's taking some kind of a journey to the underworld to gain some type of wisdom, much like attempting to gain wisdom from one's own unconscious mind, right? It's so the thought that Odin doing that is a metaphor for what a person does to find some deeper wisdom. That's how I look at it. 
And then Odin returns with the runes. So this idea, yeah, why spend time on the runes? Well, that's the wisdom. It's the image of the wisdom Odin comes back with. Yeah, and I think that's interesting because like when I, and, and I'm not sure if this is what you're getting at, but I know, or I read these stories initially like three or four years ago, like the Proset and the Poetic Edda, and they were just cool stories at the time. And like, I do, I knew the character of Odin as like, oh, well, he's, he really wants to learn the runes. He is really trying to like become more powerful and he's like sacrificing bits of himself to do so. But then like more recently when I've gone through it again, like I've, I've read it through the lens of Odin having this, like, like him having existential distress, which I know I mentioned in a previous episode. And like, despite his understanding that he is going to die one day, like what he learns in Volospa, he still goes goes to the extreme to try to make himself better, whether it's learning the runes, learning poetry, you know, or like even defeating the riddle riddle weaver in like this contest just to say he did so, or to like defeat Thor in this like uh, dark age rap battle. Um, so it's very interesting that like because of where I am now compared to two years ago, I'm interpreting this in a different way, and it's like the stories themselves mean something different to me. And the really interesting idea, you know, one thing I think as we talked about last episode, right, as we learn how to read the runes, right, as I learn all the systems and what's happening under the surface, then you can intellectually, right, break it down at deeper levels. The, the really fascinating stuff I'm reading, you know, more books by Carl Jung, by Joseph Campbell, would be the idea that when you read it the first time, these symbolic ideas might actually be speaking to your unconscious mind, right? So you read the book and your conscious mind takes the story away. But did the story reach you at an unconscious level, right? Like you don't really know that unless you get in touch and communicate with your unconscious mind. That's the idea, right? Even, yeah, like, but why did I want to talk about bullying? Because a few people have mentioned to me their kids are, you know, fascinated about this idea of mythology. When they read myths, right, they, they have a different experience probably than adults do. But does some of the unconscious wisdom power get through? Can't really tell. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Cool. So I can move into the next part where we briefly discussed last episode or? Go for it. Yeah. Cool. So moving, moving on, um, in our first episode on the runes, David and I discussed the runes themselves as they appeared in the sources, primarily from the poetic Edda poems, Volaspa, Sigurd y Fumal, Havamal, and Rigsthula. Then briefly how they were mentioned in Egil's saga from the saga of the Icelanders. Within the sources, you can make the clear connection that the runes contain magical properties that grant the wielder or the being who knows how to use the runes, great power. We discussed victory runes, beer runes, wave runes, mind runes, and life-saving runes, among others, most of which with which deal with protecting yourself or others given the situation, along with the powers of persuasion. We also then compared the power of the runes, which is written communication, to the power of poetry, which is verbal communication. And as you can see in the stories, and I mentioned this earlier, Odin goes to great lengths to obtain both. So one of the themes of the North's myths seem to be that words themselves have power. And if you look at last week's episode, when we discussed Harbardslad, you can see that Odin enjoys himself when he verbally pones Thor in, as I mentioned, a Dark Age rap battle, putting Thor in a situation where his physical powers mean absolutely nothing and where he is emotionally defeated. In this case, the words are mightier than the hammer. Today, we're going to continue that conversation of potential modern-day uses of the runes. I was laughing to myself in there, but I was trying not to disrupt the audio with my laughter. So, <laughs> Which part? Uh, mostly the um, getting pwned by uh, Thor. Or by yeah, Thor. I know. That's, that's, how, that's how everybody knows we're millennials trying to be I don't, I don't millennials like to, in 20s. Well, no. I, actually, I know I'm not supposed to, but I do like to explain the jokes, but also I had to say something because I'm like, I'm laughing in the background, but I don't want to mess up audio for everybody. So <laughs> anyways, so why should a person try to learn the runes, right? That's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm, you know, I've been writing more of the blog post things. You know, clearly I think it's very interesting, right? Sean's describing his process of finding it more interesting as he learns more about it, right? There are a set of symbols that reflects some of these ideas from Norse mythology, right? That's at the minimum. They're sort of symbols that represent bigger ideas. I think I talked last time, the, the auroch or the primordial cow, right? The, uh, there's runes for Thor, there's runes for Tyr, or fertility. Maybe that goes with Freyr and Freya, right? Yeah. Um, but for some people, they mean a lot more than just a symbol that has, like I said last time, like a hieroglyphic meaning, but it has a lot deeper 
significance to people. So rune magic is a topic I'm really not an expert on, but I've been reading some books by people who are experts on, you know, it's kind of their spiritual practice or they, they, this idea even of practicing magic, right? It's something I don't know anything about, but I'm reading books about it. I'll put links you know, in the show notes or on the blog about how you would read more if you're just find this, you know, I was very curious about it, right? I'm not sure. I don't think I'm a magic practitioner myself, but I'm uh, very interested in it. But then even if you're not interested in practicing magic or you don't think this, you know, that Asa true is your religious belief or anything like that, right? Why might it be helpful to learn to understand the runes, right? At a little deeper level than just, oh, it's a, you know, a curiosity from history. Then some people find it interesting. So it's similar. I think it's the benefits are similar to writing poetry or learning to read poetry because from my experience, you can't just, you know, read poetry. Like when I was younger, I'd read poetry and I'm like, I don't get anything out of it, a process to really understand poetry. And it requires creativity, but it also develops creativity to make sense of the runes. It requires abstract thinking, really making these connections that they're not entirely rational, but it's the symbolic thought process, which I may have said before, the unconscious mind, you know, your dreams show up as symbols. They don't, they're not literally what you see in the dream. They mean something. And it's the idea that there's a whole part of your brain and your mind or your spirit, if you even want to go there, that thinks in this symbolic way. When you're a rational person focused on, you know, taking care of your job and doing what you need to do day to day, you don't have to pay attention to the unconscious mind. That's why it's unconscious. But so this might help you to understand that better, to understand runes, to understand mythology. Maybe that helps you understand the way your unconscious mind thinks, reading some different books that would agree with that idea. In the episode today, I'm going to give an example of how you, how, how would a person come to understand two runes and um, say what I understand about this idea of divining the future with runes, because that's something that comes up in the poems here and there. I tried to understand it a little bit and without... As I, as I always try to do, like being respectful of those people's uh, spiritual beliefs, practices. But any thoughts you had, Sean, on that kind of? Well, so I, I like what you say about divine the future using runes. Um, the Last Kingdom series, or I guess they call it the Anglo-Saxon, uh, the Saxon stories or whatever. But it's it's the uh, series of books that The Last Kingdom was based on. And there's one character in one of the books who is a Norse pagan who has these runes that she just throws to the ground and then looks at where they're pointing yeah. when they land. And that is how she tells the future. And if you look at Norse mythology, like, you know, the Norns are there like carving into the tree, the trunk of Yggdrasil, like, like weaving the men's men's and God's fate. Yeah. So there's obviously some power there in this world. Oh yeah. And I think it was from uh, Tacitus, the Roman historian who, uh, you know, so recorded these things back like the year 100. That was the thing he saw, them pulling out the runes written on at least wood chips, if not bone chips, and they pulled them out of a bag or out of, out of somewhere, and they would read the runes, and he saw this happening. So we know it's historically, it actually was a thing. What do we do with that? What does it mean? What, what do we take from it today, right? Like you said, it's an it's a impressive image when you see it on the show, right? But, yeah, but I also like, I like, like what you said about the unconscious view of what the runes do, because like somebody can like read runes or like read letters and even the alphabet that we look at on a day-to-day basis and know what it means. But like what, if we see something that we don't think we see, like subconsciously, like what, what does that mean? So like what implications do the potential power of runes mean for an individual? Yeah. It's kind of the idea to step beyond your skeptical mind and to try to think like, what, how would I make sense of a magic spell that's written out of runes? That's actually the same process to understand your dreams, right? Cause you could just say, Oh, it's like, is it last time? It's just a dream about a homeless guy wants your pizza. But maybe it's a lot more than that, right? Those things, all those things I just said are pieces of their symbols. You can connect them to all kinds of things deeper. It's on each person to interpret it, right? So it's really not like you go get a book that tells you how to read tarot cards. And you're like, now I read tarot cards because I read this person's system. You're supposed to kind of learn a personal meaning. You get in touch with your own unconscious, if not something like spiritual. Yeah. Yeah, So it's up to whoever like the learner's interpretation is or like what the learner's interpretation is. Yeah. And and that's interesting. And that, that kind of leads me to, you know, my next point here. Um, because like looking at modern day uses of written or verbal communication, you can see that words still contain power. Um, and I mentioned this a couple episodes ago, like people still name their boats as a form of a superstitious protection as it is bad luck to not do so. And it's like, I also discussed in part one that like as a form of personal therapy, I personally like to write things down that I'm grateful for, but also things that I'm deeply afraid of and like things that give me like very bad anxiety on a piece of paper. And somehow I always feel better after doing so. And I know like, I'm not writing down runes. I'm writing down the letters that I grew up with, but I think it's very similar in this case. And like even moving past those written letters or written runes, 
like during meditation, like I know people, myself included, like to repeat to themselves affirmations that are like designed to change the way the individual thinks. So like mine, like my, like you are here, you are now, like you're trying to keep yourself in the present moment, which helps me to keep everything in perspective or kind of to simply slow my mind down and like to reduce the uh, negative effects of like my ego, if that makes sense. And like, again, this is just like me conveying words to myself, which can be considered like poetry or me writing things down, which could be considered the runes, which we know in Norse mythology contain power. So in these cases, if I do feel better after writing down my deepest fears and or telling myself things aren't that bad while meditating, do these words contain actual power? If that makes sense. Yeah. It's okay if I interrupt a little bit there because- Yeah, yeah, please. I see other stuff. Yeah. Well, it makes me think of it's that idea of a ritual, right? To write in your journal, you know, if you do it once a week or you do it, you know, certain days of the week, right? That's a ritual, right? To meditate, you know, people do meditation. Usually it's maybe some kind of a schedule or you do it in the morning or you do it once a week. It's another ritual, right? So as I learn about on what the runes are used for, right? The people who use them. And some of it's, I feel like it's not my place to say what it is because I'm not really a practitioner. Mm -hmm. That question, am I a believer in it, right? Is a very interesting question, right? There's, I don't think there's a yes or no answer to it, right? Because I find it interesting. I like to, I like to read about it. But people who, like I've read a little bit about what Sadir magic actually looks like in a a modern interpretation or understanding. Which is Freya's magic from, um, yeah. Yeah, so it's people trying to re- recreate that because it's certainly pretty much been lost to history, but can you recreate it? Right. And then um, Wicca is a magic kind of practice and sort of a religious spiritual belief. Um, Another form of paganism, I think comes out of England originally, but it's all over the world now. And then like the Norse heathenry that there's magic that goes with that. So it's kind of like Wicca, but not exactly. Yeah. It's people's spiritual beliefs, right? So it's like talking about any kind of religious system, any cultural system, but they have all these rituals, right? They have practices. It's, you know, and then when you learn about that. And then you like, I, I keep bringing it back the examples of looking at the Christian church, look at the Catholic church. There's all these rituals that people do, right? But for a lot of people, they lose their faith in religion or in Christian religion, and then they don't have any rituals, right? So this idea that you need to have some kind of rituals in your life, because that's what humans evolved to. Hmm. We've had the urge to do it for more than probably 10,000 years, right? So you need some kind of rituals, but what should they be? And nobody gets to tell you anymore, right? You have to figure it out for yourself. That's what I Yeah, so like a good ritual for me is not to wake up at seven and look at Twitter and then see what horrible things people have to say. Right. There but might be more a healthier, so it should yeah, there might the healthier healthy. option might be for me to meditate and write down my thoughts and say right. it's not that bad, you know. But then it might be that you just need to go for a run, right? And you get your mind off it. And then and then maybe you can come back and you can journal on something that's that's not the terrible things on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like how like our, our topical uh or like when we try to make like our Norse myths or these Norse stories topical, it always comes down to like me, like doom scrolling or something like that, or just like, yeah. I don't know. Well, I think it, it's, social it media. the place of a ritual, right? Cause I, I get on Reddit and read nonsense on Reddit. I'm like, that's not the best ritual. I don't have anything else to do sometimes. And it's easy and quick. Right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's, it's funny. That's the thing about Reddit. Like yeah. Twitter, I just assume is always going to be bad, but I still go into it. But then Reddit actually has like some pretty cool, like subreddits, but then I always like click into one. I'm like, I know it's like going to piss me off and I just got to like kind of get past that. <laughs> yeah. It's, if you, I just look at the main page and it, you'll, you'll be like looking at this thing that's heartwarming, this thing that's, you know, like very funny like a puppy dog. And then, yeah. And then just horrible, awful, awful, terrible things. The, the, the shadow of the, the human unconscious. Right. So, <laughs> well, I know we did discuss last episode um, on a Harvard's lot on how like Odin, conducted a dark age or like won a dark age rap battle against Thor, but he also, you also could consider like a dark age, like internet troll yeah. contest against Thor. Oh yeah. It brings out the worst of people, right? It brings out something, something ugly when they don't have to care about what you know, other people think of them, right? That no one's watching so they can do what they want. Yeah. And as long as a lot of people don't have the, Oh, well, sticks and stones may break my bones. Like as long as long as no one tries that in the, uh, in the internet troll, uh, someone should try it and see how it goes. Yeah. I don't think it's going to go well. I'll try it, but I'm going to just be just depressed after it. But you can also just walk away. You, you can also just walk away from the screen, right? So the internet, won't, which it, yeah, it, you can. It's not easy to, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. With well, this this asshole, what did they say? Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's probably better just to not go into it and meditate, or just go for a walk with your dogs, or as you said, go for a run or something. Yeah, right. Or like I know earlier I mentioned the power of persuasion, you know, with words, and I think like today the power of persuasion or influence clearly plays a part in you know today's centralized world which now contains as i mentioned social media 
so when you like, and you can see for yourself, if you have like a president or a prime minister or anybody really speaking into a microphone and getting their listeners to believe, you can see like this happening in real time. So it like, if you, if you remember Game of Thrones and you remember the character, Lord Varys, he's right in saying that power itself is a trick. It's like a shadow on the wall and that power resides where people believe it, believe it resides. I feel like with these words written or, you know, verbal power certainly does exist in these cases. So although I don't think like if you have runes, like, and you write things down, I don't think there's actually magic being done or like if you tell somebody that they are cursed and you like convey a verbal spell to them, I don't believe there's actually magic being done, but if you like, look at this, like the effect that, that this may, that these words may play on the listener like do these words contain actual power my personal guess is no but maybe i need to redefine what i think magic is if that makes sense no and I, as I, I saw you i saw you had wrote that down in the notes and it led me to think because that question right does the do the runes have power right it's similar to the question right do i believe in the runes right it's sort of like it really depends right but somewhat can they have power if you give them power right like at least within a personal level right i would i would think yes but it depends mm-hmm. how, how do you define power right and then magic is something I read recently that, you know, the, the, like, especially black magic, right. Is all the rituals that are, that weren't accepted by the Christian churches, right. You know, anyone else's religion, you know, any pagan religion, their magic is essentially just kind of their, their religion, their practices, their rituals, right. Yeah. So, you know, so what, yeah, what is magic, right. Is magic what's ha- people don't see it that way of what's happening in their, in their church. Right. But like we gave that example last week, like that's, it's extremely similar to what a pagan ritual would be for blessing wine or bread or any of these things it's like the sign of the cross on like a baby's forehead yeah or and and over the wine and things like that right yeah that all of that is is what it looks a lot like when i read things about wicca and pagan magic yeah what's interesting like if you if like there is somebody that thinks like the runes are magic the person may like see a reality in which they are real when the magic is real that could mean for somebody else like the magic is not there but for that receiver then it is and it also reminds me of this episode of this podcast that I, I, I listened to called Unexplained. It's by this guy, uh, Richard McLean Smith. And he did this episode on, um, he does many episodes on exorcisms. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And he talks about one episode, like he had like this, like a side episode after this one exorcism episode. And he talks about how like one person that was exercised, like to this day says, like, I know the devil was in me. And this priest got the devil out of me. Like, I know for a fact that is what happened. Now, if she grew up deeply religious, even if like there's something in her head and it's all in her head is like getting to her, would it still be beneficial for a priest to come in, even if the magic doesn't exist to do this exorcism? And then that also becomes the question of, can you do the practice like skeptically, right? Can you be one foot in and one foot out, right? Because I think I said a little bit before about the idea of the shaman and the medicine man is basically that they, they can work on people who are within the shared culture. A lot of the, officially the power of the medicine man comes out of their understanding of the mythology because the mythology is the understanding of what gods and spirits can we use. And it's interesting as you talk about Catholic exorcism, right? Because I don't know as far as like official stances of the church, but as, as I grew up as a Protestant and a person who's very much like scientific rationalist probably first and then Christian second, right? I always thought exorcism was like very weird witch doctor stuff. I'm like, that doesn't, that sounds like outside of the normal realm of Christianity to me, right? And it is, but it's within uh, Catholic tradition to do this uh, working with spirits. It's very much like what a witch doctor does, right? Uh, not a witch doctor. I meant to say a, a medicine man does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe both. I don't know. <laughs> and it is that the person, you know, there's something wrong with the person, clearly that things are not going well for them. And that they believe there's a spirit that needs to be removed, needs to be exercised, and the priest believes that's what they're doing, and then it happens, and then the person's better, right? So it's whatever was needed to get that accomplished, uh, that's what it did, right? Yeah, and again, I was raised Catholic, and everything I know about exorcism is from the movie Exorcist. Yeah. Um, But I do know, I'm pretty sure that there's people in the clergy that one of their roles is to be an exorcist. I think there's some offense used, but like, yeah, yeah, I think there's some Catholic either people or churches where that's, it's more of a thing. And then some places where it's, it's not as much, right. Cause we grew up, yeah, just living a few miles apart. Right. So. Yeah. And it's like, when it comes to coming up with that problem, like if somebody has something go horrible in their life and like, they have like a horrible, like nervous breakdown is the best way to say it. But if they are, if they're raised to believe that there's like a huge dark force yeah. 
in this world and something does not go their way and like their mind just says this is the work of you know the devil or surter or depending on who you ask about norse mythology like loki like this like being has consumed me and i need help you know like that's that's kind of like what i'm getting at like you you built your kind of defenses up and like the human ego as i mentioned earlier you built your defenses up because you assume that there's like this dark force and and david you would be able to better speak to this than i would but like i feel like if you prop yourself up to where it needs to be defended, there's going to be a dark force to defend it from, you know, if there's like, if you think that you're being possessed by Satan. Yeah. Yeah. The word you use for it. Right. Cause yeah, whether it is uh, there's some, some word you had said in there, but whether it's power or whether it's a dark force, right. And it's like, well, what does that mean? Right. If you, if you want to get very logical and literal, what do we mean by a dark force? Right. But, but the unconscious knows exactly what it is, right. It knows that no, there is a dark force there. Right. But it's just, mm-hmm. Uh, how do you put it into words, right? It's not yeah, easy to put it into words, but then do the rituals resolve it where you can't even explain why it worked, but it did because it, it's on an unconscious level. So I think that's, yeah, it's what's happening there, right? But yeah, whether you, and it goes back, like I said previously, well, if you want to explain it all the way, you can call it all the placebo effect, right? And sure, that's one, <laughs> one scientific explanation for things. You know, everything is magic until science can figure it out, right? Like, yeah, that's, that's, yeah. that's historically how things work, right? That, oh, it's, you know, if you took one of our cell phones and you took it back to the Middle Ages, they say it's magic, it's a witch. And then once you have the technology and the science, it's science, it's not magic anymore. Or like 1500 years ago, if you need to protect your house from Surtur, like maybe put runes in your house or like five, like four or 5,000 years ago when, I guess, I forgot the story of like Moses but like, if you need to protect your firstborn son and you need to like wipe sheep's blood, like across your, the front door of your yeah. house, no, you know, there is things, there, is there things that are in the, in the Hebrew Bible and the Christian Bible. And there's, they're exactly what's, you know, not that everybody uses sheep's blood or things. And because a lot of arguments about why it's probably not good to use actual animals blood when we don't need to, but uh, like traditionally that was witchcraft sometimes. Right. So, but anyway, like, I, I know I've gone on about this for a bit. Um, oh, I think you wanted to move on. I but. think it's good. Yeah. And, well, and then let me describe this one practice. It's one that I, I feel comfortable to, to describe a little bit because you can just Google search online and you'll get pretty much what my description is. So it's not like it's a deeply kept secret, right? But it is also that, you know, when you, if you start to really believe in it, maybe you give it more power. If you look at it skeptically, it doesn't have much power. So it's that idea of divining with the runes, right? It's very much, I wanted to know, like, what, what is that? How does that actually work? The idea is you would get like the 24 runes that are in the elder Futhark and you have them carved into stone or into pieces of wood, and you put them in a bag. To give just one example of how you might divine somebody's future or answer their question, you would pull out three runes, right? So you pull, pull three stones out, you put them in order, and then it tells you something. You look at them and you make sense of them. And so it might be, you know, it'd be just three kind of random letters out of a bag. But because you know what each of the runes mean, then you also know how to connect. What must it mean for that one to come after that one and that one to come after that one? Right. And it's not obvious that even when you read a book on how to do it, it's not like they can just tell you the, the answer, right? Like turn to page 50 and there's your answer, right? It's that you kind of know the person that you know what you think the runes mean and you interpret it based on your, your understanding. And then there's other systems where it'd be like you would pull out nine. So you do three for the past, three for the present, three for the future, something like that, right? Or like Sean would ask me, you know, how soon is my car going to get out of the shop? And I'll pull some runes out and I'll tell him what's going to happen with this car, right? <laughs> there's just, you know, that's a silly example, but you can use it to answer questions about like, you want to know about your future, but there's definitely a thing in the Havamal where it said like, you know, that this is unmanly magic. This is savior magic and kind of Odin's thing, right? Be careful what you wish for, right? Be careful. You might not want to know your fate, right? So mm-hmm. that's where I don't, yeah. I don't actually practice it. But, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not going to be divining my future with the runes anytime soon. I don't know if I would eventually, but I want to know how it works. And yeah, just to be able to explain, like, that's what it seems like people do. So you can, you know, you can read online, you can order a set of runes. Yeah. Just like throw them on the ground and see if you throw them on the ground and see like where they're pointing, like, or see what, like what the, what shape they're going to take. There, there's even one I read about that takes the world tree and the nine realms, right? And you kind of assign these nine different positions to nine realms with, of course, Midgard in the middle. And then you'll pull nine runes and you set them on each of the places. It's telling you something. It's kind of like, you know, getting your horoscope, reading tarot cards, things that people do sometimes, but it'll say, you know, your, your Vanaheim rune, it says this, right? Your Alfheim or your, uh, yeah, your Alfheim rune says this, your Asgard rune says this, and then you're supposed to figure out what that means, right? So if you get really into this stuff, you somehow, you know, probably would be best actually to learn it from a person who they practice it themselves and then it makes sense. So it's funny you say that because like if you look at astrology, like I know, like I know I'm an Aries. I don't know anything else about astrology, but one of my coworkers was like, "Oh, well, what time of day were you born?" 
And I was like, oh, I was born at 6.32 a.m. on this day. It was like a Saturday. And like she sent me this like nine page document because like she's very much into this stuff. And she was like, oh, here's your sun sign or something. Here's your moon sign. And this is what this means. And I was like, whoa. No, it's, it's that, kind of a similar concept, right? You can see that do people have an urge to find this kind of meaning, right? And it's a thing like just to know that the month you were born in, it's like how many thousands of people were born in your month? You, you all are not the same, right? You can't all have the same future prediction, right? And then it's like, well, maybe if we know the time of birth, you know, you're the only person maybe born exactly with all these details. To me, this is a way it's like a little more sophisticated, at least in my, my way of thinking, that you do the work yourself, right? You don't just ask the computer printout. You don't just look at a book. What does it say about Aries mm-hmm. today? But you get to do that creative, interpreting, intuitive work yourself. So that's a very interesting thing to think about learning, right? Let's see. So that was my little bit on divining the runes. So, but more I wanted to, in this episode to explain how, how would a person go about learning the runes? Because I think even if you're not going to do the magic, even if you don't quite have the spiritual belief, it's an interesting thing to learn how to make these associations, make these connections. It involves just a lot of looking at the mythology anyways, right? So it's kind of, if you like the mythology, it's an interesting thing to, to know. The one book, uh, and I'll put a couple books in the comments, but the one I'll just mention right now is uh, called Taking Up the Runes by Diana Paxson. It's somebody actually was recommended to me this book, and she really integrates all these different sources. So she doesn't tell you what the rune means. She tells you when she tried to make sense of what they mean, she looked at this source and this source and this source and put all these different, whether it's, you know, people who write about runes or looking back, like we've talked about, you know, the poetic edda, the prose edda. They'll also bring in things. These these rune poems are very important as they try to figure out what rune goes. Because like Sean read some of those lines before and, you know, it'd say like a, a victory rune. And I was like, well, there's no rune that from what I can remember is specifically a victory rune. But then when you see that there's a tear rune on the rune poem and the thing it talks about, you know, tear and that warfare and victory, then you're like, oh, that's probably the victory rune they were talking about in the poetic edda. When there's these poems written, they say they think they were actually first written in the eighth century. There's an Anglo-Saxon rune poem. There's a Icelandic, a Norwegian, maybe even a Swedish one too. And the, they were mostly rewritten again, like in the year um, 1000 and between you know uh, 1500 that they put these into manuscripts, right? But they were ideas that were out there before. And I'll read some things out of those rune poems. So you can see what I'm talking about. And then they'll also look back at just other sources of mythology, right? As I look at you know Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell and what are the themes that underlie all kinds of mythology it connects to a lot of these ideas, right? Sometimes it'll be, you know, they're like, it's hard to find from the Norse sources what this rune goes with exactly, but there's this thing that, you know, the Celtic, you know, uh, spirituality and paganism is talking about. So they're like, it probably is that, right? Because all the cultures, you know, you go back far enough to the year 300 and things like that. I think it was when the Celtics were still in the mainland of Europe. Is that right? I mean, like, I think the Celts like were a part of Europe, like 2000 years BC, but like they're, they, a lot of them stayed, a lot of them like migrated. So I think yeah. anybody of European descent is Celtish at some point. And they, and they had stronger, uh, you know, communities remaining, I think, around uh, Normandy and things like that, like parts of France, and, but especially Ireland, uh, Scotland. All yeah. of them, right? so, so let's go through an example or two. See what we got time for. Yeah. So they call the letter B Burkano. I'm not entirely sure why, actually. I should know that, but I don't. But it's a letter. It looks like a B, right? Again, it's carved very angular. And there's a Norwegian rune poem that says this letter shape it goes along with this little poem that says, the birch is the greenest leafed tree um, of branches. Loki was lucky by his deception. So this is from, from Norway, something written between you know the year 1000 and uh, 1500. What, she, she even said the author of this book, she's not sure what the sentence about Loki is, but there's so many different things about Loki and deception that uh, that's interesting, right? The idea is that Burkano, the letter B, goes with the word birch, right? Because the birch tree starts with a B, and that's one, you know, that's one reason, right? But then the idea is like, why else, right? Why is that? It's kind of like, you know, you learn your alphabets today and they teach kids, right? A is for apple, B is for ball, right? You just go through these, a letter that starts with it. So maybe it's just that, right? But maybe it's more. So she says that the, yeah, in the old English rune poem um, in the Icelandic, they also agree that it goes with birch. They, they don't mention Loki in the other ones. I just like to include that one because it said something about Loki. And then she mentions things like that the bark of a birch tree it's very like smooth and plain and it'd be a great place to carve your roots, right? If you're carving on a stick, things like that, that's probably historically a thing. And then they mentioned this poem, Sigrafumal. Uh, yeah, let's, let's go with your way. Um, I'm sure I got it wrong when I said it earlier. That's that, uh, not as good. But this is the one that yeah, Sean mentioned in the last uh, rune episode, right? It says, the branch runes you must learn if you want to heal and know how to treat wounds, cut them on bark of forest trees whose branches bend eastward. 
So this brings into the idea, right? We're talking about birch trees, you know, carving on a tree branch, right? So, and that somehow that ties into healing, right? So that's a, a interesting thought that something I'd read was that potentially you could carve the runes into wood, put your magical intention into carving it on wood, and then you could actually scrape it off into a drink. And that's the way you could drink the rune, get it into your body. I just thought that was interesting when I read that. And Sean had read something that was an old story where they were scraping it off of a bone and then rewriting it. Yeah, that was from that, Akel yeah. Saga. Made me think of that, yeah. And then she cites several other authors. So these are just other people who you know, wanted to understand runes, wrote books about runes. They'll connect the birth, the birch tree to the earth mother, right? Which is not an immediately obvious connection, right, to me. But then it would be connected with the goddesses, Jord, the earth goddess, the mother of Thor. Uh, there's Nerthus, who, as I've read, was an, an old Germanic goddess that maybe became Nord. So the, the question is either were Freya and Freyr's uh, parents, were like they another set of twins, or was it actually a man or a woman? If, if you go back before kind of the Viking times, yeah. Um, are you asking me or <laughs> no i'm just saying that's that's a thing that's like an un, undecided question that they've said like yeah i was gonna say i have age. no idea you can it depends on like whatever you read at the time or like okay. whatever source you read read from so say yeah because i think like nerthus is not exactly in the any of the viking age poems but it was a older god in the old germanic cultures or then maybe even a uh, hell or hella that's the goddess of the underworld right they also know this is what I was saying, you know, like some of them just the runes just look like a tree, some might look like an elk, things like that. That came from Diana Paxson, you know, that the letter B looks kind of like a, a pregnant belly and breasts. And so that would be the idea, like, you know, they didn't have a lot of entertainment back then, right? They didn't have a lot of social media, they didn't have books, right? So they see a letter B and then they're like, hey, what does that look like? The story it reminded me of is have you ever heard of a Grand Tetons National Park near Wyoming? I have not, no. Yeah. So the, the, the story behind uh, Grand Tetons National Park is that there were French explorers, you know, traveling up the um, Mississippi River, and they were kind of the first ones to, you know, the, of Europeans to reach Yellowstone. And it's this mountain that's passed there. And they looked at the mountains and they thought they looked like the Grand Tetons. And so I don't know if you speak French, but people can, uh, our European <laughs> listeners might enjoy that one. And that's I certainly just, do not know. What, what do a bunch of guys walking around in the, uh, in the woods for a long time think when they see mountain peaks, right? is basically my connection there. <laughs> Any case, I'm off, I'm off topic. So then it's thinking about the mythology, right? What's, what are some of the goddesses that have things to do with healing and with, you know, the earth and the part of the idea with the, the birch tree is thinking of like it's spring and the, the branches are kind of blooming, right? And the trees are coming back to life. That Frigg was a patron goddess of like mothers. And they also would have been the healers, right? Just the way in everybody's family, your mom, you know, tends to your, your little cuts and puts a bandaid on and things like that. That's, you know, but they had other kinds of, whether it's magic or healing back then, that was sometimes the mother's role. The book also mentions that there's like Scandinavian traditions that make use of birch trees, right? Just the way like the pine trees are very important for Christmas here in the US, that uh, for spring holidays or for May Day, you know, using birch trees or birch branches as this kind of a symbol of the rebirth of spring. So that's kind of the idea, right? It's, it doesn't, to see the letter B, it doesn't tell you that's the earth mother. There's nothing obvious about that, right? But it's this idea, has that letter B been connected to the idea of the birch tree? Does that connect to a very much a earthy, grounded nature kind of uh, archetype or entity, right? Whether it's a goddess or whatever you want to call it. That's the claim, right? So that one I, that one I liked because it's a little more of a stretch to me why the B rune goes to uh, the earth mother. What are, what are your thoughts so, on that, Sean? Yeah. Well, I'm curious, David, what your thoughts are, actually, if you... Like, let's say you're in Scandinavia in the year 600 and you walked up to this farm and you saw a post, like a, like a wooden fence yeah. with a bee, I guess, carved into the, uh, the wood. What would you think of it? Yeah. No, the, the thought would be, you know, is it the protection of the earth mother, right? Is it that they're trying to look for like fertility or something like that for their, I think you would use probably the F rune for fertility, like, right? But something yeah. for the, for the soil, for uh, the health of the earth, right? And so, I yeah, I wonder be, if I could be uh, both. Cause like, yeah. that's where you might like look to Freya, like one of the Vanier goddesses yeah. who's like the Vanier goddesses are known for like fertility and like yeah. growing good crops, yeah. you know, or something like that. But like, there might be more to it than just like one rune. Like there might be more than one God that you want to worship. Yeah. No. Cause I think, I, I think it would be the, the F rune. That's very much for fertility. If you were looking for your crops to grow well. But this might be for something like health, right? Like somebody had been ill and they're trying to yeah. heal, right? Yeah. So like, I don't see any like, you know, nefarious or evil meaning behind it, right? But it would be, yeah, something about 
the earth mother, right? You'd be like, why is, why is the earth mother rune carved on there? As, as far as I understand it. Yeah. And the reason I'm asking is because I think two weeks ago, I asked you like, oh, so like, what if I wanted to put the Thor rune on my boat? And you, you made oh, a yeah. comment about how like Thor would like throw a lightning bolt and destroy right. the boat. No, that's the Thor rune is a dangerous one because you might, they say someone you might be bringing in the, uh, <laughs> the Jotun, maybe not just Thor. Yeah. So that's one of those. One of those things is you read enough about it, right? Yeah. <laughs> this one's a good one. This one's usually, yeah, something something motherly. It's usually a nice thing. And I'll try to go through quickly. The letter T rune is the one I've, we've said before. It goes with Tyr. And the Icelandic rune poem says that Tyr is the one-handed Aesir and the leavings of the wolf and the king of temple. So it makes you think about that myth of Tyr. I think we've read it a little bit. And I'll, I'll read the fuller extent of it in a moment where he has to sacrifice his hand to control Fenrir, who's a, you know, not just a wolf, he's like a earth destroying wolf, one of Loki's children, right? Yeah. So that gives you a little bit to think about what is, that that's what they associate the letter T with, is this little poem, when they wrote the Icelandic rune poem, and all the other ones, the Norwegian and the Anglo-Saxon rune poems agreed it goes with the god Tyr. And Tyr is really kind of like a minor character in the uh, poetic Edda, right? But the idea is that he's actually an older Germanic god too, that he was probably the sky father before the Viking Age. But then it was later, and maybe he was up there, right, in the in the Scandinavian area. But then yeah. Thor and Odin became more, that's who people really, you know, the people really liked Thor. He was their protector as the years went on. And so, yeah, from the book, Paxson, she identifies that the, they call it Tiwaz, is the letter T rune. It's shaped like a spear. But that, so that might mean, you know, something like victory in battle, but it also might be the pillar that holds up society, right? Is like the post, there's this, this idea, as you read a bit about the, the history, like they would take one of the posts from their house even when they were traveling over to uh, England or Scotland or Iceland, when they were going to go kind of conquer a new place, they would let a, a post from their house float up to shore to kind of figure out generally the direction of where they should build their home, like taking their cues from, from nature. But the, the pillar of your house is an important uh, image. Yeah. And that, that victory. And I think room. that might've been, um, cause I, I know that definitely happens in like one of the sources for Iceland. Yeah. Like I, it may, I, I feel like it may have been Thor, but um, I think it, probably, it might depend, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. So it's, you know, you, you look at this letter T and it looks very much like an arrow or a, a spear, but then, you know, for someone to look at it and think like, oh, that reminds me of a post in a house, right? And then you're like, oh, I know there's places in the sources that talk about the pillar of a house, right? So it's mm-hmm. connecting all those ideas together. And as yeah, Sean identified as well, right? The victory rune, the saying about that is to cut victory runes, Sigdrifumal six, cut victory runes if you want to win. And engrave them on your sword hilt, on blade guards some, and call on the plates, and call on tier twice. The idea that, you know, they're saying right there, you, you would carve them on a sword hilt. They found in the archaeological history, people would carve them on spears. So it's like, yeah, it looks like a spear that makes sense, but, but maybe it meant a rune for victory and warfare. As people, you know, think about what they think tier and this letter T rune means, tier is the guiding light. There's some, some idea that in history, he was maybe represented by one of the stars, like the North Star, right? Following the North Star. But it's especially what does Tyr represent is justice, whether that's justice in combat, whether it's, you know, what's right, right? Doing what's right. So there's that, yeah, the poem where he loses his hand. It's a self-sacrifice doing what's right for the community, right? It's not what's good for him. He'd like to have both hands, but it's what he needed for other people, right? So that's an idea of what is that, what does the rune represent is similar to what the God Tyr represents. To me, like personally, what I take from it is like the stoic virtues, right? They're very much self-discipline, courage, justice, things that show up in the Havamal too. But then also this idea of it's, you know, what leads to a orderly society, right? It's sort of maybe you sacrifice a little bit of yourself, but it's for the the greater good. It's for the good of everything around you to sacrifice some of your own self-interest. And uh, do you know that story, by the way, David, like where, um, like how like Tyr loses his hands? Yeah, I, th- I think, let me see, is this the, this is one thing from uh, the Gilfagening, uh, 25? I be, yeah, I believe I it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it? go ahead. Actually, yeah. if you have it there, yeah. But then if you know anything else about it, let me know after. Yeah, so. Sure. So it says, uh, Tyr, he is the most daring, the best in stoutness of heart, and he has much authority over victory in battle. It is good for men of valor to invoke him. It is a proverb that he is Tyr valiant, who surpasses other men and does not waver. He is wise. So that it is also said that he who is wisest is Tyr prudent. This is one token of his daring. When the Aesir enticed Fenrir, the wolf, to take upon him the fetter named Glepnir, the wolf did not believe them, uh, that they would let him loose until they laid Tyr's hand into his mouth as a pledge. And when the Aesir would not loose him, 
Then he bit off the hand at the place that is now called the wolf's joint. Is that mostly the main part? Was it poetic, Edda, right? Yeah. That's from the prose Edda. But Prosetta, like, I think right. this is, yeah, this is like interesting because my understanding of the story, and this is accurate, by the way, like, I think my understanding of the story is that the gods wanted to prevent Ragnarok. So they capture one of Loki's children, the wolf Fenrir, yeah. who they know because of Odin's wisdom is going to help start Ragnarok. So they had this like contest with him and I could be wrong. I, I haven't read this in a bit, but they had this contest with Fenrir where they tied him up yeah. it, just to see if Fenrir could break out of their chains. And Fenrir did multiple times because Fenrir was like enjoying the contest. Yeah. So then they created this like one chain, Klebnir, that they put around him, but they he like Fenrir said, I'm not gonna do this unless like you are willing to sacrifice something because I don't I don't trust you. Right. And that's where Tyr said, Well, I'll I'll put my hand in your mouth. And, and it's interesting, right? Because yeah. Tyr's like kind of the 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 virtue of justice goes with Tyr, right? And he's he's lying, right, to Fenrir, but it's for the greater good, right? And he loses, but then the sacrifices he has to lose his hand, right? But it's that idea, right? Is is lying a good thing, right? Like normally not, but sometimes you have to do it to save everyone, right? Yeah. Well, he yeah, he thought that he was helping to prevent Ragnarok, and like it it didn't work, obviously. But I find that very interesting that like here and like similar, it's like Boulder, like they are like these like very noble beings, these like noble gods, yeah. and they both had to pay for it. And that's where I think that's the idea, right? What does the tear rune represent, right? It's, it's all these ideas we've talked about, right? And how could you represent it all in one letter, right? That's kind of a neat thing, right? So when you think about needing to be noble sacrifice or right, needing to be victorious, needing to protect others, but it might cost you. And then what is the cost? And you're trying to figure out what that is and whether it's worth it, right? Then you think about the tear rune that tells you. It's, it's clearly an idea I really like, right? So I'm, I like I, all of those values and that that's a thing in life that people have to consider sometimes. Yeah, why not have a rune that represents it? If I did, if I was going into battle, would I draw the tear rune on my hands, or would that like mean I'm sacrificing myself? Well, that's that's the idea, right? Yeah, you put it on your on your sword. You know, oh, you, that's right. Maybe, yeah. you maybe even could put it on your shield, right? And and I don't know if you could, yeah, put it on you know your forehead or your hands or something like <laughs> that, right? But it sort of is like when you go into battle, you know, you're risking your life. You're willingly putting it up there that it might be taken away, but that's what's needed for you to win. If you run away, you don't win. It's yeah. So that's where it's not just a good thing. You know, it's like you got the tear rune. It, it doesn't mean you're just happy, but it's like, okay, well, what do I need to do to win? <laughs> no, no, this is really cool. Like, I, yeah. I feel like we could go on runes forever. I oh, and there's 24. Yeah, there's 24 runes. So I'm like, there's, there's two. That's how I make sense of them, right? And then there are 33 in the old and the Anglo-Saxon, and some of them are slightly different, but they're just like they look different, but they mean the same thing. You can get into this stuff a lot. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Is there anything else that you had on the runes? I had like a couple of rune stones that are that exist today that I was going to like briefly mention, but I didn't know if you had anything else. No, that's that's where that's where I, I kind of leave it. You know, that's how I make sense of the runes. So if other people were interested in the runes, you know, I'll list the books that I used. So it's kind of where you could get started and you can uh, read learn a lot about it. Yeah. Yeah, that definitely. Um, and so the last thing I'll say, like David and I have been talking about runes in the sources and like runes, how like potentially modern day pagans maybe looking at the runes to like looking at the runes for their benefit. But if we look at the actual rune stones that we have that we know exist today that were like created in the Viking age, most of them are more so in line with Odin's advice and Havamal of reputation is everything. Though like a couple of the ones I listed here with the yelling rune stone, which is found in Denmark where King Harold Bluetooth is the, who's the first Christian King of Denmark put a runestone up runestone up in honor of his father gorm the old and his mother tira he also mentions that he is the first christian king of denmark in that runestone so he put this runestone up potentially to honor his mother and father and to like briefly say what was great about him very similar to a tombstone if you look at it it's like saying oh this person like was great this was their mother this was their father may he rest in peace kind of thing, you know? And then there's like, there's a runestone called the Hagby runestone who were like Hagby had raised and in memory of Jorbjorn and their brothers, they died in the East. Very, very basic. It's more so just like a memorial to a family member or like maybe a relative or something like that. Because you wanted their, you wanted their reputation to be remembered. Right. And, and I think 
that carving these rune stones wasn't easy. Like some of them were very large and then, you know, carving stone wasn't easy back then. Right. So you put in a lot of effort. Exactly. That it was yeah, somebody that meant a lot. And you mentioned like, it might be kind of a ritual. I guess what this could mean is that like back like 1500 years ago, somebody may put a rune stone up and they may have not thought it was like magical at all. But to your point, the ritual was, Hey, I'm going to get this stone and spend the next three days to carve out what I love about my family members. There is like some therapeutic benefit in there, similar to how there is in tombstones today, or and like it, similar how, to how there is in like a like a funeral today, right. if that makes sense. And it goes back to those questions, yeah, of what people back then thought about the spirit, right? Because it's the spirit of the person that died. As as I read a lot of these things about Asatru and things like that, that you know, their that idea of the reputation is like contained kind of in the spirit, or it's one of the components of your spirituality is your reputation, right? So that. You can call it magic, or you can just call it their spirituality, their spiritual practice, right? Because that's why we do the tombstones today. I think a lot of people don't actually don't actually like to think about those things. Don't think too much about the soul. Don't think too much about the spirit. That stuff I started writing about more because <laughs> I find it fun. It's interesting to explore and, and try to think about, right? Because it's not rational. There's no logical answer to where is the spirit? What is it, right? And it's funny because like I like I know I mentioned in previous episodes, I've had my own like uh, panic attack, like in some like existential, like some sense of an existential crisis. And one of the things that makes me feel better is when I do die, I, I hope that on my tombstone, what it says under my name is I fucking tried. And it's like, is you know, I hope like, you know, that's going to be beneficial to me when I'm on my deathbed, but I hope whoever like carves that in there is like, you know what, maybe that's how I want to live my life. I fucking tried, you know, that's all anybody can, uh, can, can say, right. That's yeah. That you, that you try, that you try your best, right. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And not saying those are runes, but like, I mean, I feel like the, like the idea of putting things in the stone is, is relatively similar, but it also goes back to the first episode on like, I guess, part one of the runes, you know, I, I'm able to tie them into fate based on the sources. And, you know, if you write something down, like it could theoretically be there forever. It might become your reputation, you know? Yeah. yeah. Something else that uh, had slipped my mind earlier, but as we talk about rituals, it's this idea of the power of the ritual, right? Cause you're kind of talking about what's the power of writing something down, right? It's the idea that more than just thinking about a thing, if you put it into action, it means more, right? You, you've activated more parts of your body, of your brain to not just say, you know, like, I think I want to be like Tyr. But mm-hmm. if you take some step, take some action that's being more like Tyr, you've gone a step further, right? You, towards actually changing something, right? So I think that's the idea, whether it's writing it down on a piece of paper, whether it's carving it into wood, that you, you have a ritual, you have a thing you do, Besides just thinking it, right? Because you think it, and then but your thoughts are kind of easily they wander and they're lost, right? But then like meditation is that very intensely focused kind of thought, essentially, right? So that's a ritual as well, right? It's yeah, that, yeah. I meant to say it earlier, but it popped in my head now. Anything else, Sean? Maybe we can cut and paste that piece and put it somewhere earlier. Yeah, no, I think I think this is good. Like I, I don't know if I had anything else to say on the runes. Um, I think they're like evidently considered power in the sources, but you know, obviously in like a modern world or even like back in the Viking age, you know, people like looked at the runes and had their own interpretation of it, as you mentioned. So do they contain power if writing something down on the stone, like because of your loved one means that much to you and like it allows you to honor their life that alone contains power in itself, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. yeah, Just, just on its own, it doesn't have power when you put power into it, but then it raises a question, is it just power in your own mind or is it some kind of a spiritual power that other people can connect to besides just your mind, right? That, that's very- That goes into collective thought, David. And by the way, on, on that note, like in the, in the show and book American Gods, and like, actually, I haven't finished the show, so I'll go with the book. The gods actually exist in many pantheons. Yeah. Um, and they briefly discuss why the gods exist. And it's because there's collective thought that they exist. So that's people the- believing in a god created the god, and then the god does what the god is supposed to do. And that's that idea, right? Uh, well, I will not go too far on the collective unconscious right now, but it's uh, as I read different things, you know, especially Joseph Campbell, I want to bring him back in at some point to the podcast, uh, talking about his his book, his theories. It's these same things that show up in all these different places in mythology. And it, sometimes it seems very unlikely that anybody actually told that story to somebody else, right? So did it yeah. just spontaneously come up twice? Is it just a part of the human mind that is there in every person? You go a bunch of places, Sean. <laughs> yeah, I'm going. I'm going in one place in particular, and I'm asking you if you want to create a rune for Thor to where Chris Hemsworth comes with his like 
it's probably, I didn't even explain bind runes, is where you combine multiple runes into one rune, but then it gets very powerful, and then you have to be very afraid of what is the uh, what sacrifice <laughs> do you have to make to get Chris Hemsworth to show up? No, but that's that, that would be the question if you <laughs> if you prayed for Chris I'm Hemsworth. just kidding. We can end the episode. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I'm figuring out what you're going to have to sacrifice, Sean, to get Chris Hemsworth to show up. You're not going to like it. You be careful what you wish for. <laughs> yeah, definitely. All right. Good night, Sean. Have a great Bye. Good night. Talk to you later.